I often get asked by listeners how they can support the show, and now I have a way that you can. So you can support the show through the ACAST supporter feature. Just go to supporter.acast.com slash yogaland. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. I so appreciate any contribution you want to make and know that the funds go toward paying my producer and other people who help me create this show. That's supporter.acast.com slash yogaland. Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is Yogaland. My guest today is Lisa Walford. Lisa is currently the curriculum director for the teacher training program at the Center for Yoga in Los Angeles. She is a longtime Iyengar yoga practitioner and trainer and assessor. She holds a level three Iyengar yoga teaching certificate and has been teaching in the LA area since 1982. She continues to go annually to Pune to study with the Iyengars. And she is one of the most devotional Iyengar yoga teachers I have ever had the privilege to study with. So Lisa did the Iyengar portion of my teacher training way back in 2002 when I did my 200 hour with Sarah Powers. Everyone fell in love with her and fell in love with Iyengar yoga. And I think what Lisa gets across so clearly when she teaches as well as in this interview, is she puts so much care and intention into everything she does. So I think prior to studying with Lisa, I associated Iyengar yoga with being, I'm just being honest here, with being a bit fussy. It felt like a continuation of my dance training, which was just too rigid almost for for me personally, and it kind of stressed me out. When I studied with Lisa, I had the exact opposite experience. It didn't feel fussy. It felt full of care and it felt full of attention and intention. And when I was practicing Iyengar yoga, I couldn't think about anything else, which is what I wanted. It brought me with laser-focused attention, both in my body and in my mind, to the present. So she's just an incredibly gifted teacher and a wonderful person. On this episode, she talks to us about her approach to immune health, which I thought was just a really nice bridge as we move from the autumn into the winter. Well, we're not quite there yet, but we're, we're, we are deep in autumn right now in the Northern Hemisphere. If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you can just hold on to this episode when you, when you start to move into those seasons yourself. Lisa was also generous enough to speak about her own challenges with immune health. She was diagnosed with HIV in the mid-1980s, and so she talks really openly about that and that experience, the internal experience of that, the external experience of that, how she managed through periods where she really was unwell and unsure of the future of her health. So she's just an inspiring, loving, lovely person, and I'm so excited to share this interview with you. Enjoy it. Hi, Lisa. I'm so, so honored to have you here today. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I've been listening to this podcast, you know, for a while, and I love the service you're giving our community. Thank you. You have no idea like what a compliment that is for me. I did my 200-hour teacher training with Sarah Powers in Marin in Mill Valley about 20 years ago, and you did the Iyengar segment of our training. And I just looked up to you so much. I mean, your knowledge, your history, your devotion is just, I, I, I can't believe you listened to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so happy to have you here. So because I had that few weeks of training with you all those years ago, I know a little bit about you, but this is the first time I get to actually ask you questions one-on-one. So I would love to start. I don't know the story of how you discovered yoga and it becoming an important part of your life. So I would love to know if you'd love to, if you'd be able to share that. Like so many of my colleagues, I think I started as a dancer. No, and I have a degree in dance, <laughs> for whatever that is, was headed for New York, as most dancers were in the 70s, yeah. realized I was too short to be anything but kind of a character dancer, or a modern dancer, was doing a grand jeté, 
landed wrong, tore an adductor muscle and kind of couldn't walk for a couple months. And that really changed things. So I started teaching. I had several dance companies I was involved with. And I was introduced to my first yoga class at the Center for Yoga in Los Angeles. It literally was a Cinderella story. Now, I was married at the time. My first class was with Chad Hamron. And within six months, I realized that my life was changing. I divorced. I moved into the center. I took a teacher training program and I started directing the center for yoga. I mean, it was literally the shoe fit. Amazing. And who was running the center at that time? I don't, was it Ganga White? Ganga and Tracy were just moving out. Okay. um, So they had just opened White Lotus in Santa Barbara and Mati came after me. And, I was wondering you know. about that cross because <laughs> I remember Mati's story is she really started out there too, didn't she? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I started in 82 and uh, left the Center for Yoga in 84, opened a studio with Anna Forrest. <laughs> uh, that landed and that'll segue into the rest of our discussion. We had our studio for about a year. And then she left and I went on to Yoga Works and the Iyengar Yoga Institute in Los Angeles. I was going to ask, when you started at Center for Yoga, so it it was founded by Ganga White and, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on Tracy's last name. I'm embarrassed. Tracy Rich. Rich. And so they were not strictly Iyengar based. Is that correct? So how did you get into Iyengar Yoga? Well, um, the Center for Yoga, really, Ganga was the original founder. Tracy came later. And in 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 82, there was no Iyengar Yoga Center. There were some Iyengar Yoga teachers, but I was studying with Ganga. It was Flow Yoga. And in 1984 was the first national Iyengar Yoga convention in San Francisco. The first. And I went and I met Guruji. I met Sri BKS Iyengar. And it's a funny story. Uh, when I realized this was somebody who cared so deeply about what he did, I was taking a pranayama class. And I was in my early 30s, late 20s, early 30s. And it was taught by one of his teachers. And we were doing chair backbends, things to open the chest. And um, he walked in. He was very, what's the word? Um he was very iconoclastic. He was unique. He was wearing these little red Speedos. <laughs> and he walked in with his entourage and just blew a fuse. Said, what are you doing? Said, pranayama, you're stimulating their nervous system. You have, to, of course, his getting so upset was stimulating my nervous system. <laughs> but you, know, you must start with them in a quiet way. You must condition the nervous system. And I realized this is somebody who it's not about my backbends or, no, it's about something of an entirely different dimension. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was 1984. And his visit, he then came down to Los Angeles. And I was fortunate enough to be in several classes that he wanted to see what the Iyengar teachers were doing. And then we opened the Iyengar Yoga Institute in Los Angeles in, I think, 1985. Wow. And wow. So that was a real, so many people tell the story of finding a teacher where it just felt like an instant resonance. Like, okay, this path, I want to try this. This is where I want to go right now. Yeah. And it's interesting when there's somebody with that kind of prana, that kind of chi, that kind of shakti, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, because they end up like a magnet. They galvanize people to them. Mm-hmm. And then over time, as their experience grows and their teachers, then you know, kind of that spreads throughout with the mm-hmm. same fever, really, you know, the same love and devotion and animation kind of born from that relationship with their teacher. And then over time, it becomes systematized. I mean, I saw this happen with Yoga Works with Mati as well. Mm -hmm. It becomes systematized and, you know, codified. And so it's interesting to watch the evolution of things over time from that germination into Mm -hmm. it's a little bit like the telephone story. Mm. 
So now that Guruji passed away in 2014 and Gita 2018, Abhijata Iyengar has taken the mantle, granddaughter, and she is phenomenal. Oh, that's so, so nice. Yeah, it's yeah, no. She's. I wasn't uh, aware of that. That's really nice for the whole family that that's worked out. Yeah, uh, she is a woman of the modern age. No, she's in her early 30s with a master's degree, married a couple kids. She's traveled all over the world with Gita Iyengar to see how Iyengar yoga is. So it's really pretty phenomenal to mm -hmm. watch kind of it being reinvented. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know that you traveled to Pune many times to study with him. I just it would just be so fun. And I probably should have emailed you before to give you a chance to think about it, but it would be fun to hear a, a story or two of studying with him and, or just an, a particularly impactful moment. I mean, that story that you already told is, is a great example, but since so many of us will not go to Pune to study there, I, I it would be so curious to hear an experience or two over the years. There's a couple that come to mind, that just immediately come to mind. My first visit to Pune was in 1986. Guruji had just ceased being the main teacher and Gita was teaching, but Guruji was always in the room. So she would start teaching and then he would cut her off. <laughs> Almost, you know, it was like this, you know, dog and pony show. But I remember he was teaching Adamukushvanasana, downward dog. No, and we've all heard the instructions, move the thighs back, draw the weight into the legs so that the spine can extend, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he had so much dynamism, you know, and vigor that once there were three of us kind of demonstrating and from downward dog, I remember my quadricep muscles were sore for three days. Wow. <laughs> you know, you don't think of your quadricep muscles being <laughs> sore from downward dog, but you know, right. there, there was that infusion of yeah. Shakti. Mm -hmm. So that was one. And then another kind of poignant moment was with uh, Gita Iyengar, you know, Guruji's daughter and a phenomenal, phenomenal teacher who really revolutionized kind of yoga for women and for women's issues for us. I mean, she would have ladies classes and they were so special. So there was one where we were sitting in Upavishta Konasana. I was in the front row and you know, I'm very skinny and, and very tiny. And you know, she, she's a big woman. And I remember her at one point saying, Lisa, you need more of the water element in your body. You need to kind of spread and let things fill out. Hmm. And I need more of your energy and my body, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, yeah. And it like took my understanding of yoga again to an entirely different level, you know, mm -hmm. the water element. Okay, so yeah, maybe I was being too muscular or too, you know, like let things flow, you mm -hmm. know, let things spread, let things kind of find their level. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so, you know, you are such a, an experienced teacher at this point. I don't know if you still teach strictly within the system or if you have colored outside the lines a little bit. I, how, how would you describe your teaching at this point in your life? You know, that's such a potent question. I've always, throughout my experience with yoga, been um, a bridge builder. You know, so at Yoga Works, I was emphatic about Yoga Works being a platform so that Iyengar Yoga would be accessible to everybody because we had our institutes, you know, and our Iyengar exclusive studios. And in that vein, I kind of represented for the National Iyengar Yoga Association. I was the ambassador at Yoga Works as Yoga Works grew and to make sure that there is something significant about a cohesive generation of teachers, which is why Iyengar Yoga is often one of the most appropriate systems that yoga therapeutics uses in scientific research. No, because the sequences can be replicated because all of the teachers have a similar understanding. But that said, I also realized that we needed to be accessible to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And so I was always kind of uncoding and uh, these words that we would use, you know, like grip the hips or hug in. 
And, but I do remember there was a point when I had to make a choice. No, I, I, I literally was kind of called to the platform and said, you have to make a choice. And that was an easy choice. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I, I practice Iyengar yoga. I am an Iyengar yoga teacher and I've been assessing within the system. You know, so we have this whole codified way of supporting the growth of our teachers through the assessment process. And it's so remarkable to watch how much diversity there can be of expression within the cohesiveness of the system. Mm-hmm. Having been an assessor for almost 25 years now, watching generations kind of grow through the system. Mm-hmm. So so now on Zoom, it also changes. Uh, you know, Gita would say you know, that how we teach young women is different than how we teach women who are pregnant or on their menstrual cycle or who are going through menopause or who are postmenopausal. So now that I'm in my late 60s, you know, I teach and practice differently than I did when I was in my 30s. You know, so I try, because I'm mostly teaching on Zoom now, I try and represent that for my students. Uh, you know, this is your option this way, and this is what's appropriate there. So that we we really empower um, our students to recognize that there's something for everyone, and we ultimately, as the Bhagavad Gita says, we are our own best friend and our own worst enemy. <laughs> so, you know, we really need to take the take the grist, take the essence of what is important for each of us. Mm. That's that's beautiful. And I'm glad that you spoke about this because I think there is a little bit of an impression that Iyengar yoga can be so rigid. But what you're describing to me sounds much more like it's responsive to the student and the situation within a structure, within a framework. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Abhijata, so even the way Gita Iyengar taught in her later years is very different than how Abhijata is teaching now. Mm -hmm. And as she grows this younger generation and represents Mm -hmm. nationally, and she teaches on Zoom and internationally. So it's been a privilege, really, to watch a global studentship, because we all think of ourselves as students first, to watch that kind of studentship grow as the times change and um, collectively support one another. I use much more movement now, being kind of postmenopausal and teaching on Zoom than I did when I was in the classroom. Nowhere I could say, you people go to this part of the room and do this, and you people go to that part of the room. No. So, um, and the movement, I think, kind of frees people a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then once they've had that movement, then we can go deeper into the particulars of sensation and refinement and absorption and, and breath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I was going to say, what a blessing that teachers like you and Abhijata are available on Zoom. That's amazing. Um, are you teaching on Zoom through Center for Yoga? I am. Okay. I am. Okay. So people can find you there. And one last, I, I'm kind of going on and on with these broader questions. We're going to talk, get to the immune system, I promise everyone. But I'm also just curious, you know, you mentioned being a bridge builder at Yoga Works, and this is something that I, I, oh gosh, I just so appreciate about you and Mati. You guys were like Betty and Veronica. I've never thought about that before. <laughs> Remember the Archie comics? <laughs> because she did the same thing for Ashtanga Yoga. She was a bridge builder and bringing that and making that more accessible. And I love. I just loved over the years, I worked with her a bit at Yoga Journal, and I, I loved hearing about the relationship the two of you had and just the amazing curriculum that you created through Yoga Works. So what would you say is the mission of Center for Yoga? Well, the Center for Yoga in Los Angeles, it's where I started yoga. And it clo- it, it became a Yoga Works studio in the, I don't know, 2000. Early 2000s, I think. Yeah. 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 And it closed during the pandemic as Yoga Works kind of closed all the physical studios. There was a for lease sign on the building and the community just panicked, Mm -hmm. you know, like everybody does or did during the pandemic. 
And it kind of brings me, it will be one of the four pillars that I'll be talking about with the immune system, which is the importance of connection and social connectivity. And I was able, I realized I was able to be one of the people to bring it back to life. And what greater gift to this yoga than to be able to, that Guruji always said, as he had given to us, it is for us to give back. No. And so with the Center for Yoga, uh, it's it's been slow. It's been gradual. It's a new world now. Um, but I am less in the position of an Iyengar yoga teacher here and more in the position of you know, respecting the community and helping the community of teachers, this next generation of teachers, find their own connections. Mm. So in a way, supporting the teachers who will be the center for yoga teachers. Many of them have come through the yoga works, but the trickle-down effect through yoga works, which you know was a trickle-down effect from the relationship that Mati and I had, mm. and yet with the influences of so much more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad you're there at the helm and and there for those teachers. I always say there's there are few professions that are harder than being a yoga teacher for many reasons. And I think having helpful guides and mentors who care is is essential. So it's great that you're there for them. So let's let's talk a little bit about immune health. You shared with me when we were emailing, and I wasn't aware of this, that you were diagnosed with HIV in the 80s. And during that time, I was thinking back, it was just probably really terrifying to go through that. And the treatments were so new. So I would imagine that you went through a lot and learned a lot about yourself and including the immune system. So how did you care for yourself during that time? And and what role did yoga play for you? It was a terrifying, tenderizing, uh, um, truthful Mm -hmm. (laughs) time. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not the only one, you know, speaking now. And there are so many who are listening who have at some point experienced something that just shattered their life. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to think of kind of Leonard Cohen's song, the crack is where the light comes in. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's an anthem. <laughs> One of his songs, uh, it's an amazing song. And it really cracked my world on every imaginable level. And particularly with something at that time where it was so stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Now, I let's see. I was infected in '85, diagnosed in December of '85, and in January of '86 was my first trip to Pune, India. Uh, well, that's that time, good timing. I'm sure that was good timing. Well, although I, I don't know, were you not feeling well? Well, yes and no, and and I was. So one of the interesting things about these stories is in some ways it's through sharing our stories, I think, that we recognize our common humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and for many, many years, I was reluctant to, sh- to, to talk about this, uh, both because I still felt and still feel the stigma. Sure. No, but at the time when I went, I remember in Pune in India, while it was kind of rampant in this country, in India, there had been one person infected and one person known infected. And he was put on a train in isolation and sent back to his hometown to die. No. And that was when I went to India. <laughs> of the friends who I went with, only one person knew, one of my closest friends. No. And, you know, people would tell jokes and all kinds of things. So there was a lot of just not understanding the nature of it. Right, right, right. No. I remember uh, that. Yeah. 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 And my health was fragile. When I was in India, I I came down with pneumonia. No, I didn't. At at that time, no, I didn't tell anybody except my closest friend. I could barely breathe. I couldn't speak. So it's that point where, you know, we say every breath, every breath, but no, and especially in COVID, we know when every breath or anybody who's had an asthmatic attack mm-hmm. you know, or an anxiety attack, you know, yeah. every 
breath is like, is this it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. And that was my first trip to India, unknown to Gita, because I didn't tell anybody in Pune for another 10 years. I had been out of out of the hospital and I had a probably an, an infection from the pick line. I mean, I won't go into the details, but and I didn't find out from the doctor till after I was in the air that I could potentially have had blood poisoning and I shouldn't fly, but I was already on my way to India. <laughs> so I had a very, very sensitive arm. And I remember Gita Ayengar. Again, nobody knew, but we were doing Artemachandrasan 2, and that's with a wrap, an arm wrap. And she came over and gave me an adjustment. No, and it was with the arm that was sensitive, but her touch was so sensitive. Mm. I mean, she didn't know, Mm. but something inside her knew, like a teacher's touch can heal. It can build a sense of of trust within one's own body, a sense Mm. of trust with the teacher, you know, just just by that empathy. Mm -hmm. So that was that was incredibly potent. And the community aspect, you know, you you said there was a lot of stigma and some shame. So you couldn't necessarily connect about the HIV, but you were surrounded by others who were pursuing the same path. Do you feel like that was healing as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, rather than being on my couch obsessing, Mm. No, no, I was kind of in something that absorbed me in a very visceral way. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. uh, and and that was incredibly helpful. And then when I came back, I didn't meet another woman because at the time it was just considered, you know, um, a, a disease amongst men. So I didn't meet another woman who was HIV positive for three years. Mm-hmm. And then we created kind of a heterosexual HIV positive support group (laughs) and had parties. And, but it was, it, it was an interesting time when people would kind of, again, obsess on alternative ways. You know, there was less of them. There was interleukin. People Mm. were just struggling to find what would help them live. I took a very different path. Oddly enough, I decided I would call it positive denial. (laughs) Yes. You know, I was not in denial that I had a serious illness, but I wasn't going to obsess on it and kind of agree that it was over. No. And so I did everything I could to be the healthiest I possibly could be. No. Uh, And I call those now the the four main pillars of health. Mm. In fact, Consumer Reports this month just did an article on health and the four pillars for them was that, oh yeah, (laughs) mainstream is finally catching up. (laughs) They overlap with yours? Absolutely. Good, good, good. And they'll be familiar to everybody, certainly exercise. And I would say, of course, with yoga, that's that includes exercise of the body, exercise, so our asana, our pranayama, and our meditation. So kind of a tapas, a practice for body, breath, and and, and mind. Mm-hmm. Nutrition, you know, and kind of a whole attitude about nutrition, that whatever we eat should nourish us. And that was a big education for me. And uh, so exercise, nutrition, sleep, sleep, which is yeah. imperative now. I remember about five years ago, there was something in the New York Times that said the five careers that are on the rise, and one of them was sleep clinics. Oh, you know? yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. I've read that too. Mm-hmm. And as a young woman, I didn't get enough sleep. You know, mm-hmm. now as an older woman, I realize how important sleep right. is. Right. I think that's the way of being young. I do. <laughs> And yet it's in sleep that our tissues repair, you know, the intervertebral discs kind of regain some of their sponginess, Mm. you know, things that we've absorbed during the day, uh, mentally kind of settle, you know, so, you know, sleep isn't, you know, sleep is deeply regenerative, you know, and um, a very integral part of our, of our circadian rhythms and our biorhythms and hence Mm -hmm. important with our hormonal rhythms. So, uh, and then the fourth one of those pillars is the social connection. 
Mm. No. And so when we feel isolated, I mean, when I was diagnosed, I was in the hospital with a big isolation tag across the front of the you know, across the door when the doctors would come in with masks and gloves. and Because yeah, nobody knew how it spread at that time. I remember, yeah, I remember a boy going to school and there was a whole court case about whether or not he was allowed to go to school. And that must have been devastating. I hadn't thought about for you, you mentioned the not meeting other women who were diagnosed. I, I hadn't thought about that aspect, that how that must have added a layer, right, of of just of loneliness. And while it was potent for me then, I think every single person listening and those who will never listen, we have, have each had some element of deep loss, mm. you know, whether it was through COVID, whether it was through a diagnosis, whether it was through losing a loved one. Loss is something that, in a way, isolates us because we're not skilled in how to deal with it. No, you know, you can go put on a happy face. Grief is something you'll get over it. All of these throwaway things that are really not helpful. No. So in that sense, uh, the kind of grieving that went was really less about the idea of who I thought I was going to be that I had to leave behind and more about just taking each day kind of what can I do to this day mm. now and what can I do for my for my body now there was a point when I guess I'd been diagnosed about 10 years before I started medication I didn't start medication for 15 years to after wow. I was diagnosed wow and in those last six or seven years, my my health was pretty fragile. And I remember I was extremely anemic and had to get monthly urethropoietin injections or administer them myself. And I couldn't walk from my car to my office. And I created a whole sequence for myself on the floor, you know, so that I could practice. I didn't have the physical strength. But I could maintain my range of motion and my open up the front of the spine and my forward extensions and supported inversions. And to this day, it's my daily vitamins. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful and brilliant, too. Yeah, just having the curiosity and the care. I think what yoga does for us is it it gives us this internal locus of control. Hmm. So when we feel we're out of control and we go into that kind of victim mind now, which again can be for any number of reasons. Now, if we just remember through yoga, we there is so much transformation and change that can happen in the brain and the nervous system, the hormonal system, the digestive system. So I realized that I had more agency than I thought that with this sequence, I could, and doesn't doesn't that build resilience? Mm-hmm. You know, which mm-hmm. through COVID and all these trials that we've gone through lately. Um, so, I love it. I mean, I, I the thing that that story also brings to mind for me is that even though at that time you mentioned like walking a distance was difficult, right? So even though in a way, like you could have been someone who felt so betrayed by your body and, oh, I can't do the things I usually do. And so I'm not going to do anything. But instead you, you found a form of embodiment that you could do at that time. For me, as I've gotten older, I just keep marveling at the, at the, the difference that I feel every day because I stop what I'm doing, which is usually in my head. (laughs) And I come into my body and I come into my breath. And it's like, I don't know what I would do without that. So that's, I I love that story because it just reminds us that even in those times when our body's not quote unquote cooperating, we can still figure something out that brings us back to that feeling of, of, of more wholeness. Yeah, I had a friend, an amazing yoga teacher who died of AIDS in the 80s, Billy Porter. And I was in India at the time that he died. I had assisted him in some classes in the 80s. 
But I was told by some friends who were with him when he was in the hospital that he would, in his mind, imagine his yoga practice. Mm. And in that imagining, his whole nervous system would go through how we internally soothe and settle ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the end of the practice, just like Olympic athletes, you know, visualize their performance. There's such a connection between the embodiment and how when we steer our mind toward the cup half full rather than the cup half empty, and that's a practice. Mm -hmm. That's a Mm -hmm. practice. Mm -hmm. We can, like you said, the embodiment just becomes more more grounded. I've struggled a lot in the past with in the past with depression. Still anxiety is is something I manage, but anxiety and depression together used to kind of wallop me. And I used to find that it's one of the reasons I always worked a steady full-time job because that I didn't end up going on the path of teaching yoga and kind of being a freelancer and going here to there. Because for me, the regular routine of going into the office every morning and life going on, like having people around me who, where there was this momentum and this rhythm to life and this normalcy would bring me out of the fog of, of, of my depression. So it sounds like even it sounds, and I never, I of course didn't talk about it with people on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I had people that I spoke to talk to, but similar to what you went through, it's not like I walked in and was like, okay, everybody, let's talk about what's going on with me today. (laughs) So so it sounds like during that time, the social piece for you was similar to that. Like you found in yoga, in the yoga room, were you teaching at that time as well? Thank you so much for sharing that, first of all, because I think depression and anxiety, you know, is one of those things that people don't talk about and that is so rampant and you know what's happened through COVID it's even more so and the uncertainty of everything right now no (laughs) uh so when I was diagnosed I had the great fortune at the time to teach a private yoga class I'd make 35 (laughs) dollars and I had to drive all over the city all over the city Uh, I mean now it's different So when I was diagnosed, I obviously couldn't do that. My father was a research scientist at UCLA, Dr. Roy Walford, and he was a a pathologist working with life extension and the immune system. (laughs) And he always had a home office and his secretary, his personal secretary had just quit. So I went to work with him. So in addition to teaching, you know, we created a computer software program based on his theory, which had to do with with what you eat and Mm -hmm. how much you eat and calorie restriction. So I did everything with the computer program except the actual programming. Mm -hmm. I wrote the manual. I did the publicity. I hired people to pack it and ship it. And (laughs) at the same time, I was teaching. So there was one night I remember I worked during the day and I happened to have a a shingles attack at the time. Now, this was before I started my medication. And, you know, shingles is it was in my armpit and it was really it was like someone had put an iron in my armpit. And I was scheduled to teach pranayama that night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sure there are other yoga teachers who understand these stories. You Jason's know, had you know? kidney stones while he teaches. So yes. Oh God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, and there's something that kind of supersedes. It's like the pain was there, but the focus was so vast and open and 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 voluptuous. It's kind of strange to say that. No, that it was an amazing class. Wow. I love it. You got to <laughs> and get nobody knew. and you did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you did. You dropped right in there. But there are other times as teachers that we can, I remember another time my mother had just had a heart attack and I was in the hospital and the doctor said, look, there's nothing you can do. You should go. And I was I think it was 7 a.m. and I was 
or 7.30. I was scheduled to teach a 9 a.m. class. I thought, okay, I'm going to go teach. I can do this. And I went it was a big class. I went in to teach. I looked at them and I realized I couldn't do it. <laughs> and I said, God, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. I, I said, today we're going to practice together. And I turned my back on them and started practicing. And it, it ended up with Ustrasana, of course. And people, some people came up to me afterwards and said, I don't know what was going on, but that was a phenomenal class. Right, right. And then somebody else came up and said, you know, I travel. I've heard so much about you. I came to take your class and I didn't, I feel like I didn't get to take your class. <laughs> like, come back next week. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So sometimes things happen as yoga teachers, you know, where there's some embodiment that we can slip into. And at other times, you know, we give ourselves permission to say, you know what, today's not that day. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You've mentioned COVID and it's a good segue for us to talk about the immune system a little more with yoga. And so I'm curious, as we are heading into fall, winter, where it does tend to be harder on the immune system, if you have any insight or advice for how we can approach our practice from an immune kind of fortifying standpoint. Sure. sure. First, I'll say... (laughs) that we are so interconnected that when we address the immune system, we are addressing the digestive system, the respiratory system, um, our emotional system, the hormonal system, stress levels. It's all interconnected. And the more I live with it, the more I realize that as we accept that yoga really is about self-care and recognizing kind of this uh, symbiosis between what allopathic medicine and a Western understanding of our physiology and yoga and, and the Ayurvedic system and the body-mind-breath-heart connection, we really have the best of both. No. So as I mentioned earlier, nutrition, exercise, sleep, and social connection, I think those four are essential for a healthy immune system. Now, we can have the best practice, the most conscientious practice, but if our diet is bad or we're trying to self-medicate in some other form, you know, uh, it's not going to be helpful. You know, mm-hmm, we yeah. are our own best friend, our own worst enemy. Likewise, if we in depression, if there's some time, especially with the winter months or the holidays, when we feel ourselves being pulled down or pulled in, feeling isolated or alienated, you no, know, or some of us are just loners, you no, know, and it's natural. Mm-hmm. No. You know, something like Zoom, believe it or not, I think, you know, for people who are homebound, one of the things I really like about Zoom is even though I'm not in person, you know, I can see, I can see Barbara in her home and Carol with her dog and I'll acknowledge it. You know, we can reach out and touch one another. Absolutely. So many ways. And everywhere we go at my co-op there's somebody who i don't know what's going on with her but i have never gotten her a smile (laughs) and uh, i mean she is just and last week i just said to her i hope the rest of your day goes better and for the first time she looked at me (laughs) yeah and just said thank you it's so you know that just these little ways that we reach out that Social connection is so important, you know. So I think those four things. So drilling into each of those, I won't go too much into diet nutrition because that's a whole field. No, but you know, for everybody to recognize that everything we eat, whether it's something we eat physically or what we take in with our eyes or what we hear, all of that affects us. It's the food, the Taittiriya Upanishad talks about the koshas and the food that we take in. You know, so recognizing that 
And drilling into our yoga practice, there are times when it's really helpful to really spread your fingers and stretch your arms, get the extremities out when we're feeling like we just need to, we just want to crawl under the covers. Mm. But to recognize, do I want to crawl under the covers because I'm feeling depleted? And if we're physically depleted, then we need to, in a very step-by-step, stage-by-stage, gradual way, build ourselves up not think I'm going to go do Surya Namaskara. But if we want to crawl under the covers, you know, because we're scared of the election, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, then, you know, stretch your arms, wiggle your fingers, you know, stretch your arms overhead, mm-hmm. something that'll bring your own vitality up and shutting down. Mm-hmm. And if when we shut down mentally over a period of time, then the body will get depleted. Mm-hmm. So to recognize whether what's going on for us is, is it, and because all of this will affect the immune system and over time, uh, the body becomes more depleted, more fatigued, and all of your system will, uh, will sacrifice our vitality. Right. That sense of discernment is so challenging. And like you said, it's so important. I think when I I went through breast cancer treatment and I remember toward the end of treatment, I had, I didn't do chemo, but I had surgery and radiation. And then I had one more surgery. And I remember the, the very wise nurse saying to me, you are going to feel fatigued. That's your body's been through a lot. And you're going to feel a sense of fatigue for some time. That doesn't mean that you can't move. That doesn't mean that you're not allowed to move. But it really taught me to slow down. And I think what's interesting about what you're saying is like, there are those of us who who like push through and muscle through when perhaps we should rest a little bit. And then there are those of us who rest a little bit when perhaps we should get a little more vitality. And I think the thing that was most helpful for me in getting through that time was because I think I tend to be more of the like turtle that crawls into the hole and just pull the covers over my head. So I, I would allow myself to do really, really passive things, like really rejuvenating, restful, passive things. And then I would be surprised to find that it restored my energy and maybe I could do a little more or I could go for a, wa- a more vigorous walk or something like that. And it's just interesting that just that little shift can be a change in the way your body responds. Yeah, I like to suggest, and in our therapeutics classes, when we still had a studio in Los Angeles, uh, we always began with some form of Shavasana. Mm. Now, and it could be a supported Bhattakwanasana, it could be abs on a chair, any number of different kinds of Shavasana to check in and to give the nervous system kind of that. When I say check in, that many of us or some people uh, disassociate from the body. Now, there's been abuse, there's been trauma, there's been, and to be in the body is threatening. So if we start with Shavasana, sometimes face down for some people is incredibly nourishing. Breathing into the, the very good for anxiety because it draws the breath into the back of the lungs, uh, good for asthmatic attacks. It, it Some people face down, they'll feel more claustrophobic. So we have to, but to start with a form of Shavasana where we and I get in touch with the embodiment, with that sense of this amazing thing, our body. And yeah. And with three minutes, with five minutes, we can feel the change. It's like a dimmer switch going up or going down. And then we'll know, okay, so what is the next pose? And maybe that's enough, or maybe the next pose, and maybe that's enough. Um, There are sequences that will be more restorative where we stay in the asanas a little bit longer and the longer durations, five, 10 minutes even. Now, for instance, a supported bridge pose, freeze, softens the diaphragm, opens the chest, 
in softening the diaphragm, the solar plexus, where so many people kind of hold anxiety. It then kind of helps us breathe, helps quiet the digestive system. And the whole Jalandhara Banda effect in that form, when you hold it for a longer period of time, there's through the hypothalamus, the pituitary, down into the adrenal glands, there is a physiological change that happens. So one of the things I I did for years is every day between kind of the end of my workday and the beginning of my evening, maybe it was five o'clock, maybe it was six o'clock. Now I would take what I would call the Yogi's Martini. And it was either that probably dates Sounds me. Sounds good to no. me. <laughs> <laughs> the Yogi's Martini. <laughs> it would be either a uh, uh, Viprita Crani with a bolster underneath the hips and legs up the wall, you know. Uh, the best <laughs> or pose ever. Exact, yes, exactly. Or even just the calves on the chair and the bolster under the, you know, but every day. And it was, there's something that happens. There's a Pavlovian response where your body kind of says, oh, now it's my time. No, and it responds more quickly, more efficiently. No, and improves digestion when you're ready for dinner improves sleep because your nervous system has had a chance to kind of find its restful place now and any tension that's accumulated in the back and the shoulders during the day now so that's one thing i'd recommend i'd recommend across the board for the immune system and as, I love it. as we go into the holidays or whatever and then to your point to recognize what is helpful and there's an old Chinese proverb I like, know what is good, know when to stop. Hmm. Now, the restorative, where we hold the poses longer, that creates space, that, you know, where it increases the circulation. No, it can be just as addictive as anything. And so know when it's time to get up and move. And likewise, with the more stimulative or stimulating asanas that are Equally important for the immune system, the twists that get the lymphatic flow to move, the standing poses that help increase tenacity in the bone marrow for building red blood cells. Now, the more active dynamic that's better for depression, inversions in whatever form, supported chairs, supported shoulder stand in the chair, or whatever form of inversion has an incredibly potent systemic effect and then even just looking at the word immunity, immune, it's it's an interesting word when you take it out of the context of the immune system. It's like, I'm immune to that. Hmm. It makes us think like, oh, that's not going to bother me. But quite the contrary. It's like when we're young, and even when we think of these vaccines that we get, it's by being exposed to things in little ways hmm. that we build up our inner resilience. No, and so starting with a pranayam practice in the morning, that's the other thing I think on a daily basis, either pranayam or meditation, maybe five minutes, start with that. Mm -hmm. Lie down, bolster underneath your chest, just watch your breath. Mm -hmm. And then maybe sit up, mindfulness, so helpful, you know, because those little kind of mental viruses, <laughs> mental bacteria will kind of eat away at your equanimity mm -hmm. unless you cultivate a way to understand that they can pass through you mm. without completely undermining your balance. So um, I think that the immune system on the physical level, on the mental level, cranium practice, meditation practice, Yogi's martini. Yeah. Those three things I think would be the the trifle, like the trimurti, as we say in, mm -hmm. in in yoga. And then everything else can grow from there. Yeah. That's so helpful. I just I hadn't thought about well, first of all, I I love this idea when you mentioned the vaccine, you're getting small doses of things to build your resilience. We need to remember that it's, it's, we get stuck in like all or nothing thinking about yoga practice and really those small deposits that you can make throughout your day, throughout your week, they add up. And I had never really, I, I love to do a morning kind of 
set the tone for the day. For me, it's usually meditation. For some reason, something that you said, just, I think you said it's a way to realize that these states can pass through you. I never thought about this time of day and this consistency of this ritual of having something that you do to set your tone for the morning. It's also a way to process unconsciously, like all of that gunk that gets built up and just, it's like a clearing and a quiet time of, of processing because we're, we're just always in, so in the world. I love that time that we give ourselves to just be out of the world a little bit and in our own little space. So thank you for that little inspiring moment. And to your point, just as I suggested that, you know, I would start my practice with some form of Shavasana, that kind of settling in and getting to the body. So many people, and you as a meditation teacher, so many people may think about meditation. Oh, my mind is just, how can I meditate? I mean, I realize that when I sit to meditate, as you say, this processing, it's not like a light switch. I let things, I let the thoughts kind of meander a little bit. They come and they go and it's, oh, there's that old friend and there's that, whatever. And, you know, after five minutes or so, I maybe I hear a bird or, you know, things kind of settle. So it's not like I'm going to sit for five minutes and suddenly I'm going to. Right. No, not at all. Yeah, no, it's true. I know I, I totally understand people's resistance to meditation. I mean, I hear just, I've heard like three times this week, oh, it's boring. And, and it wasn't even my daughter. I mean, she said that, but it was other people. It's boring. And, and I, I I don't I get it. I never know how to shift that. I, I always wish I could shift that internally for people. One way I try to, I try to is to, I don't remember who taught me this. I did not come up with it on my own, but it's, when you notice the thoughts or you notice the distractions, instead of going, oh, I'm still thinking I should be quieter, you like celebrate it. Oh, I just had a moment of mindfulness. I just noticed that. I'm going to come back to my my mantra or my, you know, whatever the focus is for the, oh, it's like a little celebration. You go, oh, I caught myself. And then mm-hmm. it's just, it's like a little celebration. Oh, I'm doing it. Instead of, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not doing it, you know? Shifting yeah. from the cup half empty to the cup half full. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that yeah. is what you're doing. You're noticing. That's all it is. It's just the noticing, at least in the beginning phases. Well, Lisa, thank you so, so much. Is there anything else that I've missed that you want to add before we we say goodbye? Um, this has been a very moving discussion. <laughs> I, guess I feel the same uh... way. I'm so, I feel so <laughs> fortunate that you came on. I'm just... I'm like over the moon to be here with you. I'm just, I'm so happy that you were here. Thank you so much. I I think in closing, I would say to reaffirm that when considering immune, the, the immune system, that it in a way for me is a metaphor for, for yoga. No, it's, it is such an integrated part of our being and so susceptible to everything. And yet, as we acknowledge it, like as I start with Shavasana, and then there's a little pranayama on a daily basis, and a little bit of this. And then I learn over time, is it too much salt? Is it too much sugar? You know, I learn over time, what is appropriate. It's not something that happens overnight. But as it says in the sutras, Vyasa and Vairagya, I like to translate as practice and patience. (laughs) And uh, I think Jason said, and I had never thought of it this way, and it was so helpful. What am I moving towards and what am I letting go of? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, no. So with practice, what am I moving towards? The cup Mm -hmm. half full. No. And it's gradual. It's cumulative. We'll move forward. We'll slip back. We'll move forward. No, um, never in isolation. No. uh, And what am I moving away from? What can I let go? What no longer serves me? Mm -hmm. And that is an adaptive kind of practice 
that builds the resilience. And that's what will help create vitality and give us that inner immunity. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's a really helpful um, image and thought to, to leave on. So thanks again, Lisa. Thank you for being here. And thank you for sharing so openly. So helpful to so many people. Thank you. And may we all support one another in the years to come. Thanks, Andrea. You are doing that with this program. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I will put links to where you can find Lisa online and in person on the show notes page at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 314. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, it's so helpful if you can share it on social media or with your friends, or if you can write a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, if you want to keep track of where Jason and I are and what we're up to, you can join our newsletter at jasonyoga.com slash newsletter. Thanks as always for listening. I cherish you. I'm thinking of you all out there. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm